Good morning. A certain uh, missionary who is well known to many of us here said to me a while back that there is a very large weak spot these days in the church's understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I, I believe that's a, an accurate assessment. And that makes, uh, that makes it a very real problem because what we expect of God and of ourselves flows directly from either a bad understanding or a good understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of us as believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul tells us that the miraculous gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit is God's down payment to us of the rest of our inheritance. Our eternal treasure is to dwell with God in His presence forever. But God has already given us the first installment of that amazing inheritance. Right here, right now. It is of utmost importance, beloved, that we know whom we have been given and what He is at work to do in us and through us every day until we stand in the presence of Christ in His Father's house. That means that we need to pay very close attention to this passage. <laughs> there is no more concentrated teaching in the whole Bible on the person and work of the Holy Spirit than you will find in chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John. And in those three chapters, there is no more concentrated portion of Scripture regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit than the passage we're in this morning, the second half of chapter 14. Now, there's no way that I will manage to address every significant truth about the Holy Spirit that we could glean from this passage in one message. But if you find yourself later this afternoon scratching your head and going back to the passage and saying, wow, why didn't Tom talk about that? Then my view is that that will at least have driven you back to the Scriptures and I'll consider that a gracious outcome from the hand of God. This is a passage you could spend a great deal of time examining. And I didn't want to break it up because there's real unity to this passage from beginning to end. Some of the things that are spoken of in the beginning of it are, are addressed and kind of brought to culmination toward the end. I'm going to do my best in spite of my uh, type A coverall basis personality this morning to, to talk about the things that are most essential, most foundational that this passage has to tell us that the Lord Jesus has to tell us here. After listening to a practice run of this message last night, my wife told me to let you know that yet again this sermon is brought to you by the letter P. My three big outline points this morning are all about our Lord's promise to send the Holy Spirit to His disciples when He returned to His Father. We're going to see in this passage that the promise of the Holy Spirit is personal, it is purposeful, and it is privileged. It is personal. It's about God Himself dwelling 
inside of us and abiding with us. It is purposeful. It's about God Himself teaching, reminding, enabling, and using us. And it is privileged. It is exclusive. The gift of the Holy Spirit is exclusive to those who love Jesus and keep His Word. First, the promise of the Holy Spirit is personal. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus said that He was going to prepare a place for us that He would return and bring us to that place. He would call us to Himself. Now, what is the point of that place? If you've been hanging out with me for any length of time, you'll know this is where I really, where the alliteration really kicks in, right? Because the point of the place is the presence of the person and of the people. It's the presence of the persons, the three persons of the Trinity and the people of God who dwell with Him forever. That's the point of the place. In fact, the place means nothing apart from that relationship, that eternal relationship that we will have with God. It's personal. It's about a relationship. And so is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Until we go there to dwell with God in His eternal home, God has come here to dwell in us. It's personal. Now I'm going to do a little word association test with you. I'm going to say a word and I want you to tell me which person of the Trinity comes into your mind when you hear the word. It's just one word. And when I, when I tell you the word, just blurt it out. Say it out loud. Which person of the Trinity comes to mind? Here's the word. Paraclete. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very small, colorful bird. No, I'm kidding. That would be a parakeet. <laughs> I'll tell you in just a moment. In John 14, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says to His disciples, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. We're going to see that, that statement multiple times. We'll talk about it. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper. Another Helper. That He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The word translated Helper there is the Greek word parakletos. In the literature of Christianity, you hear the word paraclete used to transliterate it, bring that word over into English. That's because it's kind of hard to translate into English and do it justice. If you break the word down into just the, the meaning of the parts of the word in Greek, you come up with something like one called alongside. And that's really a pretty good definition. It's variously rendered in the mainstream English translations as helper, comforter, advocate, counselor. Based on all that the Bible tells us and, and how, how the New Testament uses that word, it, it occurs in the Gospel of John and in the epistle, the first epistle of John, I'd have to say the best translation would be a combination of advocate and helper or enabler. Advocate and enabler. But if the Holy Spirit is another advocate and, and enabler, who's the other one? Well, Jesus, right? The one who's talking. He's saying, I'm leaving and I'm going to send you another 
advocate and enabler. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John the Apostle writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's the same word. Parakletos. So who's the paraclete in 1 John chapter 2? It's Jesus in His priestly role, His advocacy for His people. Okay? We have two advocates, not one. And the advocacy of Jesus is still ongoing, as is the advocacy of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. What Jesus is saying, though, in John 14, 16, is that for the disciples, there was about to be a divine handoff of the role of proximal paraclete. There's that pesky, perturbing letter P again. The word proximal means in close proximity. In medical terminology, it means close to the center of the body. Jesus had been personally and physically present alongside His disciples for three years. Now, He was going home to His Father bodily. But another advocate and enabler would now be right there with the disciples. In fact, He would be with them as closely as is conceivable because He would be in them. And this applies not only to the disciples, but to every child of God. Again, read Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. You'll see that everyone who hears the message of the gospel and believes the, the message of salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit as the down payment of His inheritance in Christ. So, we have two paracletes, two advocates and enablers, but the one who is now with us and in us is the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2 and other passages make it clear, as I said, that Jesus' advocacy for and enablement of the children of God has not ended. He promises here in this passage, as He did in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that He will be with us to the end of the age. Jesus will. But the disciples would no longer have Him walking physically in their midst as the perfect man and perfect God. Instead, they would have the Holy Spirit within them. The mantle of the proximal paraclete, the one called alongside the children of God, was handed over from Jesus to the Holy Spirit. But we can't press that explanation of things too far without violating a critically important truth about our triune God. In verse 17, Jesus told the disciples, from now on the Spirit abides with you and will be in you. Not just with you, but in you. But listen to what Jesus says in verses 18 through 20. He says, I, Jesus, will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I don't believe He just means for 40 days after the resurrection. And I don't believe He means a few thousand years from then when He comes back to claim His own, to establish His kingdom. No, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then He says, 
After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's telling his disciples, I will come to you. I will be in you. So who's going to dwell within and be alongside the disciples and all who come to faith through their witness? The Holy Spirit? Jesus? The answer is yes. A couple of verses later, in verse 23, Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, I and my Father, will come to him and make our abode with him. So now, who is it that comes and dwells with the people of God? It's our triune God. In these few verses, Jesus promises to all who love Him and keep His Word that the Spirit, the Son, and the Father will all come. They will all make their dwelling place in that believer. Now how can that be if the Son has departed the earth and is now at the right hand of His Father? When Jim Ellis taught his outstanding series on the Trinity a while back, which you can still get on our website, and I highly, highly recommend it, one of the things that came up in the class and in some subsequent email interaction about the, about the Trinity was a principle called the inseparable operations of the Trinity. The inseparable operations of the Trinity. What that means is that none of the three persons of the Trinity ever acts independently of the other two. Or to put it in the positive, whatever one person of the Godhead does always involves the activity of the other two. That's true when God creates, when He judges, when He blesses, when He curses, when He redeems, and when He does everything else that He does. So while one of the three persons of the Trinity may have the primary role in a given work, all three are always active in that work. In every aspect of our relationship with our triune God, in every aspect of His involvement in our lives, in every part of His work to redeem and sanctify and use us, we always get all of God. But the primary, personal, proximal presence of God in and with us now and until we stand in His eternal dwelling place is God the Holy Spirit. So first, the promise of the Holy Spirit is personal. Secondly, the promise of the Holy Spirit is purposeful. The Spirit equips and enables us to be useful to God. At the beginning and at the end of this passage, Jesus declares to His disciples that it is a good thing, not a bad thing, that He is going to leave them and return to His Father. They had trouble with that proposition. He says the same thing to them again later in chapter 16, right after He tells them that they're going to be hated, that they will be made outcasts, 
that they will even be killed for His sake. He says to them, but now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? They already had that conversation. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And then listen, he says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. By the way, if you look at the creeds, they say that the, the Spirit is it proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you look in John 14 through 16, you'll see Jesus say that the Father sent the Spirit, and you'll see him say that he sent the Spirit. So the, the creeds line up, of course, the, the, the traditional creeds of the church line up exactly with the doctrine of the Spirit as presented in this passage. All right. So if Jesus had not departed the earth, if He had not ascended back to His Father, the Holy Spirit would not have come to indwell the people of God. If you want to know why it had to be that way, you'll have to ask God when you get to heaven. I can't find an answer to that question in the Bible, and if that's because it's actually not there, then we don't need to know the answer. But what we do know based on Jesus' repeated statements in John 14 to 16 is that the advantage that accrues to us because Jesus went home to His Father is all about the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is the advantage. Now what do we know about that proposition? How is it to our advantage compared, for instance, with Jesus having just stayed here with us the whole time. Well, as I see it, there are three advantages here that Jesus lays out for us that could only have come about if He left instead of staying here. The most wonderful advantage is the one we've just been talking about, the personal one. I never get tired of my wife's company. I'm thankful to God that He provided a job for Debbie And I'm thankful for the dear people that she gets to work with, but her godliness and her tenderness and her kindness and her wise counsel make me wish I could just keep her with me all the time. And I mean that with all my heart. But my wife is just a lovely instrument of those sweet blessings. I have the source living within me. And so do you if you belong to Christ. And if your marriage isn't great, you still have the source of all blessing living within you. Even if your marriage is awful. With the home, the home going of Jesus and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the disciples of Jesus Christ went from having God tabernacled among them, John 1.14, to having God tabernacled in them. And beloved, for us who are living in this cursed place, that's an advantage. The dwelling place of God in our midst is now in us. We ca- Brothers and sisters, we carry around inside of us every moment of every day His power, His help, His encouragement, His teaching, His reminding, His illumination. He 
is in us. One of the most marvelous benefits of actually being vessels of the Holy Spirit is that we have the author of God's Word living inside of us. In verse 25 of this passage, Jesus says to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But you haven't learned everything you're going to know yet. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom My Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I believe that promise applies to the inspiration of God's Word that would be necessary for the disciples to complete God's written revelation to mankind. And I believe it also applies to the illumination of God's Word in the life of every child of God. Many Christians give up before they even get started when it comes to understanding the written Word of God. They convince themselves early on that they just don't have the ability to understand it. That perception is based on a bald-faced lie. It's a lie that denies what Jesus promises right here. If you belong to Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Him alone, the very author of the Bible resides in you. He's ready, willing, and able to shine His perfect light on His own Word if you will just come to it and be exposed to it. Come prayerfully, acknowledging your dependence on Him to reveal Himself to you. Come purposefully, not to learn about God, but to behold God, to meet with God, to listen to God. To sit at the feet of Jesus and hear Him. This is personal. The Holy Spirit will faithfully teach you all things. And He will bring to your remembrance all that God has said through His prophets, His apostles, and His Son. Your part is to simply get in the Word and stay on task. There's one thing that I tell Christians they ought to do even when it feels mechanical. And that's get in the Bible. Because God says, My word which proceeds from my mouth will not return to me void without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. He says, My word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Spirit intends to do to you through His Word. But you got to be there. The first tremendous advantage that we have because Jesus returned to His Father is that God is not only with us, He is in us. The second advantage is greater works. John 14, 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to the Father. Jesus will flesh that promise out more in the next couple of chapters, but it doesn't, it won't hurt us to peek ahead just a little, because it's good for us to be thinking about this for a while. 
How could it be that we who believe in Jesus will perform greater works than Jesus did when he was here? Well, that, we could look at that from a lot of different angles. I'm going to give you one. Consider the difference between these two scenarios. First scenario, Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit, physically present in one place at a time during his earthly ministry, revealing God to all who saw and heard him while he was here. That's the first scenario. Here's the second. The redeemed people of God, physically present all over the world, indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, revealing God to all who behold and hear all of them. And you can add to that second scenario the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the lost. Because we don't witness for Christ by ourselves. In John 15, at the end of John 15, Jesus will say, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. See, you and I are never, ever alone in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time you bear witness to others concerning Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is right there with you bearing witness. And he's a whole lot better at it than you are. Now multiply that two-person team, you and the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, bearing witness of Christ, And multiply that times as many children of God as there are in the world who bother to speak of Christ. And then think about what it would be like if every believer bothered to speak of Christ. If every bearer of the Holy Spirit talked to other people about the Lord Jesus And I think then you'll get a glimpse, at least a glimpse of what Jesus meant when he said, greater works than these shall we do because he went to the Father. We'll we'll see more about the role of the Spirit in our witness for Jesus when we get to chapters 15 and 16, including the work of the Spirit in convicting unbelievers. But it's good for us to start thinking about this and keep thinking about it for the next few weeks. It's really, really important for us to see that the promise Jesus made to His disciples in this passage, the promise of the Spirit, is purposeful. It's about the Spirit at work in Christ's disciples and through Christ's disciples in the world, using us to advance His glorious kingdom. Right after He tells the disciples that they're going to do greater works than He had done, He gives them another extraordinary promise Verses 13 and 14, he says, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. That my Father may be, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he says again, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That has got to be the most mercilessly ripped out of context promise in the whole Bible. There are people standing in pulpits this morning with churches packed with poor sheep who are hearing those preachers tell them, you can ask Jesus for anything and He will give it to you. 
Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. See, that kind, of, that kind of stuff doesn't count. It doesn't fit. That's not what the promise is. <laughs> there are people who, who completely ignore all the language of this promise except a few words, and they kind of cobble those words together. If you ask me anything, I will do it. That's not the promise. Here's what Jesus actually said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he also do, and greater works than these shall he do. So what's the topic? It's us doing his work. Okay, that's the topic. And then he says, because I go to the Father, then he says, whatever you ask in my name, that, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what's the goal of the promise? To glorify God. Alright. And then he says, again, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who's obligated in this passage? God or us? Us. You know what the words in my name mean? It's a critically important phrase in the Bible. They mean in keeping with my character and my agenda. In keeping with my character and my agenda. If you apply that super important qualification to the words whatever you ask, all of a sudden the pool of requests to which this promise applies gets a whole lot smaller and more focused. To what kinds of requests does Jesus promise here apply? Those that have to do with God expanding His kingdom through us. What would our prayer lives be like, beloved? What would our prayer lives be like if our petitions, our requests of God fell mostly into that category? You ever think about that? Read through the book of Acts and the epistles and look at the prayers. They fall mostly into that category. So you think maybe that's how it's supposed to work with us? See, this isn't, guys, this isn't about us naming it and claiming it. It's about Him naming it and us coming to Him dependently in prayer because He's the one who has to make it happen. Those are radically different views of this promise. Advantage number three, and I love this one, is a far more fitting place for the Son of God. In verse 28, Jesus said to His disciples, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved Me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. The words, if you loved Me, you would have rejoiced, make it clear that the cause for rejoicing on the part of the disciples in verse 28 is their rejoicing over Jesus' gain. His gain. See, when you love someone, you rejoice to see them blessed, don't you? Jesus, He didn't say this in the kind of petty, manipulative way that you and I would generally say it. If you loved me. Right? 
He's saying something that's true. He's saying, if you loved me, if your concern was for me, then the news of my soon return to my Father would be cause for great rejoicing in your hearts. The last clause in verse 28 is very important. He said, for the Father is greater than I. That must be understood in light of this call to Christ-focused rejoicing because of His return to His Father. In John thirteen sixteen. After washing the disciples' feet, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. For a time, for a time, God the Father was greater than God the Son, in one sense, and one sense only. My brother Ron sent me an email this week, had a list of quotes from church fathers and, and from from well-known preachers in the history of the church who understood this point very clearly. And it's a point that has fallen by the wayside and gotten replaced with a bunch of garbage of late. For a time, God the Father was greater than God the Son. For a time, the Son in His humanity was subordinated to the Father in order to accomplish our redemption. But that subordination came at infinite cost to both the Son and the Father. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He took on our humanity in order to become our substitute before God to pay the penalty we owed to Him and in order to become the perfect example of submission to God, which is God's intention for redeemed man. In doing so, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied Himself. Not permanently. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humiliation of Jesus was temporary, but it was not a one-day affair. It lasted for 33 years. Every second that Jesus spent on this cursed earth surrounded by rebellious human beings was sorrowful for Him. Because He is the Lord of glory. But He embraced that humiliation for His Father and for His bride. He submitted to His Father in everything that He said and did. But that was all temporary both the humiliation and the subordination of the Son reached their pinnacle at the cross and they reached their end at the ascension when Jesus went home to His place of rightful glory at the right hand of His Father. Now, listen one more time with that in mind to John fourteen twenty eight. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Present tense, the Father is greater than I. I believe Jesus was saying, if you loved me, you would have desired for me that which I desire most earnestly, to return to my eternal glory at the right hand of my Father. Surely these men did love Jesus. But they loved Him with a love that lacked much both in understanding and knowledge. (laughs) 
they were going to get a jump start on both those fronts just three days later. Just a few days later, the next day was the crucifixion. If they could have had even a glimpse of the glory and beauty and majesty and unity and communion to which Jesus was about to return, they would have desired all those things for Him. And beloved, they would have longed for the day when they and all who belong to Jesus will behold face to face that same glory and beauty and majesty and will enjoy together that same unity and communion and relationship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride forever in Christ. The promise of the Spirit is personal. The promise of the Spirit is purposeful. And finally, the promise of the Spirit is privileged. It is exclusive to those who love Jesus and keep His Word. In verse 17, Jesus told the disciples, the world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because it does not behold Him or know Him. And then He said, but you, you do know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Throughout this passage, Jesus speaks of two kinds of people and He speaks of this dichotomy over and over and over in the passage. He speaks first of those who love Jesus and keep His Word and His commandments. It is those to whom the Holy Spirit would come and to whom Jesus would disclose Himself. The second category of people is those who do not love Jesus and do not keep His Word and His commandments. And he makes it crystal clear the Holy Spirit will not come to them and will not, He will not disclose Himself to them. The meaning of the word keep as it is applied here to the teachings and commandments of Jesus is much more and much more powerful than obedience. Now don't get me wrong, it absolutely is about obedience. But it is a much broader and more beautiful concept than just some sort of dutiful obedience. At the heart of this powerful word keep is the idea of watching, guarding, protecting. If we make this about fine-tuning our fruit inspection of poorly performing Christians, I believe we'll be turning a stark contrast into a subtle contrast, and we'll miss the forcefulness of what Jesus is saying here. See, He's talking to His not-so-impressive disciples no more than a few hours before they would all abandon Him and run for cover. And He's contrasting them with the enemies of Christ. See, His words are not intended here to undermine their confidence that they were God's beloved little children. His words were intended to do the opposite. To lead these 11 men confident that the promised Holy Spirit would come to them. That Jesus would not leave them as orphans. In fact, His intention, I believe, in all that that He said to them on that night is declared in John 15, verse 11, when He says, These things I have spoken to you that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. 
Just a little later at the end of John chapter 15, the nature of this contrast that Jesus is drawing becomes crystal clear. It is the contrast between those who hate and persecute Jesus and his disciples. The contrast between and who despise his word and on the other side, those who love him and keep his word. When he speaks here of those who keep his word versus those who do not, he's talking about those who embrace him and his teachings versus those who reject him and his teachings. It's about believers and unbelievers. It's about lovers of Christ versus haters of Christ. Those who were of the Father versus those who were of the world. We who believe in Jesus guard His Word. We love Jesus because we know Him. God brought us to faith. He brought us to trust Him. And now we know Him. And we love Him. And every word that He says to us is treasure. Throughout chapters 13 to 17, there are three things. There are three things that Jesus demands of His disciples. That they believe in Him, that they love Him, and that they love each other. That should be no surprise to us. What did Jesus say were the the two greatest commands? Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In these chapters, he takes that second command and he refines it some. And he says, love those who belong to me. Love one another as I have loved you. He says it in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says it in John 15, verse 12. He says it in John 15, verse 17. Love one another. In 1 John 3.23, John the Apostle, who's writing this, brings those three things together. He says, this is God's commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And he says throughout chapters 3 and 4 that those who love God love God's people. There is no such thing as a Christian who is unchanged. And there is no such thing as a Christian who does not love the people of God. To whom did Jesus ask His Father to send the indwelling Holy Spirit? Let me just back up a second. There are Christians who are very frustrated with with the church. Okay? I'm not saying that none of them are believers. Because the church is a pretty frustrating place sometimes. But guys... When God God brings you into Christ, He brings you into the bride of Christ and you love that bride. To whom did Jesus ask His Father to send the indwelling Spirit? To those who believe in Him, who love Him, and who love His people. Not to those who don't. At the very end of this passage, Jesus, once again, is our perfect example of all that He's been saying. He says, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise and let us go from here. 
And he went from that upper room with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed and sweat drops of blood and he beseeched God to remove this cup from him. But then because of his love for his father and his love for his bride, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And then he went to the cross and he poured out his life's blood to save us. We're out of time, but I want to just say a couple of quick things to to bring this home. Many Christians see themselves as powerless to live well for Christ and to impact the people around them. Their perception is based, again, on a bald-faced lie. It is a lie that denies everything that Jesus says here. Christian, you are a walking, talking, dwelling place of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. You're not just an agent of God in His creation acting on His behalf from a distance. You are a vessel of God. You are a bearer of God in His creation. He is with you and in you every second of every day of your life as His child. The power that dwells within you and equips you and teaches you is a person. God Himself. The Holy Spirit. The same power by whom Jesus did every miraculous thing that He did when He was among us. The same power who raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. The same power who turned the Roman Empire upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ. That power lives in you. If you feel weak, if you feel unable to be useful to God, you're believing a lie. My prayer for you and the elders' prayer for you is the same as Paul's prayer for you in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll close. Listen to this amazing prayer. It's Paul's prayer for you, beloved, and for me. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is at work to do in you. I close in prayer with the two verses that come immediately after those verses. Pray silently with me. Now to Him, to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine according to to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.